Now today we get back into Hebrews, which is what I love to do. And as I mentioned when we started Hebrews uh, back, hmm, when? Uh, September. I, I mentioned that for me this has been a long journey. So I can remember being in middle school, I think it was seventh grade, I had a friend and we were having this debate over this passage of scripture, actually Hebrews chapter 6 that we're dealing with today. And so I went into my dad's office and stole, I mean borrowed, um, I think it's still on my shelf actually, um, there, was, there was a really well-known preacher theologian by the name of Arthur Pink. Any of you are familiar with Pink? Very godly man. He has two volumes just on the book of Hebrews. They're both about that thick, really small print. And I got that, and I was reading it, and I got to be honest with you, what, what he was saying about this passage made no sense to me. So it began this journey to try to figure out the book of Hebrews, which led us to finally, what, 40 some odd years later, we're tackling it, and today. So I'm going to try to stay in my time framework, but this sermon has been percolating for a while. That's what I want you to know. Because this may be one of the, uh, the most difficult passages in Scripture. It's one of the most hard to understand and the thing is if you go and you read different folks on it you're getting a lot of different pieces so I hope that you walk out of here today that first of all you'll be challenged by it but second you go hey okay that makes sense so let's read it together therefore leaving the elementary teaching about the Messiah or the Christ let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instructions about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, have tasted of the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless, close to being cursed, and its end up, it will end up being burned. Now, we love to study God's word here. One of the things that we often say is the most important thing to understanding God's word is to understand context, right? Where often people get into trouble is they take a piece of scripture out of context. So context here to me is so important. And if you, our problem is the last time we were in Hebrews was about six weeks ago. And we were there the last part of chapter five. But if you go back, let's look at, look at verse 12 of chapter five, you'll begin to sense the context. He says this, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracle of God, and you have come to need milk 
and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, let us press on to maturity. His whole point here is that as a believer, we need to continue to grow. We need to continue to to develop, right? You even think back. This is the third warning passage in this book. You think back to the first one. What did he say? Don't drift. Be diligent. The second one, what did he say? You've got to continue on. You've got to persevere. You've got to continue to grow. That is the context of this passage is that God calls us in journeying with him to always to continue to grow and to mature. And so he says what we need to do is leave the elementary teachings. Now, by leaving that, he doesn't mean forget it. He doesn't mean leave it in the past, don't worry about it. What he means here is you need to get this. These are the elementary teachings. You need to establish them in your life. You need to stand on them, but you need to build on beyond that. And now he lists six things here. I think what if you begin to kind of tear them apart, they're really three series of two that look to some of the elementary basics of the Christian life. So for instance, here in 1B, he says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. These are basic salvation truths. Now one of the things that's hard about this is that these six things that he, he mentions here can both equate to Judaism, and remember, that's kind of who he's talking to, people who came out of Judaism, got saved, and now because of persecution are kind of maybe wanting to go back because they think it'll get them out from under persecution, or are they dealing with Christianity? Because when you, for instance, dead works, you know, you think of the works of the law. I think the focus is on these are the basic truths of Christianity, right? You came out of the law. The law had developed into this idea that if you do these things, then you would have a relationship with God. I would argue with you, though, that was never what the law was intended to do. Salvation has always been by faith. It's never been of works. You think of Abraham. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, right? And so the, the, the law was given to, to give them direction, but it was never, but that's what it had developed into. And so he says, you change your mind about these dead works that they don't say, and it is faith in Jesus. That's a basic principle, right? In fact, probably the most basic principle of the Christian life, that we are not saved by what we are do, what we do. We are saved by grace through faith alone. The second set there is in verse two of instructions about washings and laying on of hands. And again, 
In the law, there was, there was cleansings, there were, there were purifications, there were washings that you went through. There was the laying on of hands when you would bring a sacrifice. But also, in the, in the Christian faith, these are also true. In fact, what's interesting, the word washings comes from the word baptismo, from which we get baptism. But it's in the plural, not the singular. Ah, yeah, but, but think that when, when we read and talk about baptism, it's not just one, it, there's actually a few. Like, for instance, the first baptism that a person experiences when they come to faith in Jesus is not water baptism, it is the baptism of the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, right? That is one of those foundational principles. I come to faith in Christ, you come to faith in Christ, we are placed into the body of Christ. We are baptized into Jesus. It's part of our identity. And then the very first thing that we are to do to show obedience. And, and so we've been placed into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. But on the local scene, how we can become a part of, of the body of Christ is that water baptism that we do. Letting people know what's happened in our faith. And can I just remind you, this is an elementary truth. It, it's a basic thing. And yet it amazes me. I meet people who came to faith in Jesus 20 years ago and they still haven't been baptized. And then they kind of wonder why you struggle in their spiritual life. It, it's a basic thing. And sometimes, well, I was baptized as an infant. Great. But that's not believer's baptism. We're not talking the same thing. Believer's baptism is you come to faith in Jesus and then you get baptized. And then he talks about the laying on of hands. And again, under the law, they would do that. But in the, in the Christian community, that's how leadership and authority is done in the church. They would lay hands on leaders. They would lay hands on elders, right? So, so now, moving outside of the law and the priests, this is where the authority lies within the community of believers and how God appoints that. He's going to come back to that in uh, Hebrews chapter 13, like submit yourself to the leadership that God has put over you, for they watch over your soul. The third set, then, is the last part of verse 2, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So these are basic truths about what is to come. If you've been around here much, we say this often. At the heart of the Christian worldview is a two-world view. If you want to understand how to live as a Christian, to live like Jesus, you have got to understand it's a basic truth. This world is not our home. We are just passing through, right? Our citizenship is in heaven. That's the day we live for. That's one of the heart, the heart messages of the book of Hebrews is we live for that day. You've got to get this. And so the point is you don't leave this stuff behind, you know, and forget about it, but you're established in it. I talk with Christians often who are struggling, sometimes struggling with faith. Am I really a believer? And what's interesting to me, they've known the Lord five years, 10 years, 15 years, 
but something's happened, question, man, it, it, do, it, do I really, am I really in the faith? And what they always look at is they always look at their works because maybe they just screwed up bad, right? Can I really be a Christian? Can I just remind you that our salvation is not based upon our works, it's based upon faith? That's what we look like. That's what we look at. And so that's the whole point. We've got to get these things down. We, we've got to, these have got to become the foundation. Then off of the foundation, we can move ahead. And contextually, what he's wanting to do is he's wanting, and he's going to do this in chapter 7, 8, and 9. He wants now to begin for them to think about how much greater Jesus is than the Levitical law. Because he's going to use Melchizedek, who he just introduced to us, right? That, that priest of Salem who was a priest that Abraham actually paid tithes to. And he was a foreshadow of Jesus. And to understand how much more we got in Jesus, you just got to understand these basic things. And so the context here is press on to maturity. Get the basics. Let them be established. But then when you got to press on to maturity beyond that. And then you get to verse 3, which is quite interesting. And this we will do if God permits. Now, wait a minute. He just said you need to learn to take meat instead of milk, right? You need to go on to maturity. Wouldn't it be God's will for every one of us to do it? So what does he mean if God permits? And what he's doing is he's leading us into this warning passage. This idea that perhaps there's a way in which we can disqualify ourselves from the ability to be able to move on to maturity. So this is what he says. For in the case, verse 4, of those who have once been enlightened have tasted of the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. There's a warning here, folks. And it's a warning to everybody who believes because he's talking to Christians here. This is one of the big debates in this passage. Is he talking to Christians? He's talking to unbelievers. There were some that would argue that he's talking to unbelievers. And you go, well, wait, that's not the context. I mean, you go back to chapter 3, verse 1. He talks about holy brethren. In fact, if you even skip, notice what he says here in verse 6. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, right? They've already come to repentance. You see it down in verse 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, right? He's talking to believers. By the way, can somebody who's not believed grow to maturity? No. No. Because there's no, there's no spiritual life there. He's talking to Christians. And just in case, I think his sense is that we don't get it, he gives five designations here that deal, can only mean somebody who knows Jesus. So the first one he says here is this. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened... 
It's in the passive voice, which means somebody else brought light to us. And in the context, and, and so sometimes, again, people will say, well, they're just enlightened, right? But they didn't really get saved. Which is, well, that's not how this author uses this word. If you look in chapter 10, verse 32, he says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering. How he uses the term enlightened there is you got saved. You heard the gospel. You responded. And because of that, you suffered great persecution. But you persevered through that. The second thing that he says here is that, uh, and you have be tasted of the heavenly gift. Now, the word tasted can mean to be exposed to. You know, the idea that like you, 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 instead of taste, you, you kind of smell or you kind of nibble. And so that's where those that say, well, these, you know, these people were in the church. These people even made professions. They got right up to it, but they weren't saved. But again, you got to think context. How does the author use the term? He's already used it before. It was back in chapter 2, verse 9. He says, but we do see him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, let me ask you a question. Did, was Jesus just exposed to death for us? Did he just sniff it for us? Did he just nibble on it? Isn't the heart of the gospel message is that he took our death. He hung in our place. He experienced everything that we should have experienced. And he paid the penalty for us. He tasted We. What, what's the heavenly gift? The heavenly gift is eternal life. It's relationship with God. We've tasted that. We've uh, been made partaker of the Holy Spirit. The word partaker, we've seen it a few times. It's the idea of companionship. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly cause. We're companions. We're part. There, there's this. You look at verse 14. We become partakers of Christ. There's relationship there. We become partakers of the Holy Spirit. The next thing he mentions there in verse 5, had tasted the good word of God. Again, we, we've consumed it. It's ours. You kind of think of 1 Peter here where Peter says, desire the sincere, sincere milk of the word so that you can grow. It's the same idea idea because you've tasted that the Lord is good that's the heart of this that we've done that then lastly he uses the idea here and the powers of the age to come the word powers there's the word dunamis we get it dynamite right you've experienced well what is the powers of the age to come is it not the work of the holy spirit in our life you go back to acts chapter 2 and here the holy spirit comes upon them and all of a sudden they're filled with the spirit and they're speaking to people in their own language right and miracles are being done it was power and if you remember it's quoted from Joel, right, that in the last days, the age to come. In fact, he's used this word before too in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 4. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various dunamis, miracles. And by gifts of the Holy Spirit, these people are believers. And his, here's the warning, and then they fall, fall away. 
Now, the word fall away in the Greek is hard to understand because it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. It literally means fail. The context of the word has to do with apostasy, the idea of turning from the path, turning from the standard. Apostasy. For the author, he's writing to people who have come out of Judaism, have accepted Christ, have been washed clean, have been walking with Jesus, but now with all this persecution, they're thinking about shrinking back. A theological apostasy. I honestly believe, though, that in the bigger, broader context of the book of Hebrews, it's not just a theological apostasy of turning back from Christ to the law. I, I think there's a practical apostasy that he's, he's also warning them about. And that is when, when we know Jesus and we know the way that we're called to live and to work and to act, and we, we turn away, and we're just going to do our own thing. It's turning from following Jesus. And it says, if they fall away, it is impossible. Right? I want, I want to make sure you see this. It is impossible to renew them. Now, folks, whatever this means, it's kind of big, isn't it? If they fall away, it is impossible to renew them again. This is a big warning. Now, Seventh grade, my friend came from a perspective where they thought you could lose your salvation. So if you fall away, you turn from Christ, you lose your salvation. Now, if that is correct, then this is a really scary verse. Because it's not like you get saved, you fall away, you get saved again, you fall away, you get saved. If they fall away, it is what? Impossible. I've often thought that if you really believe this, that maybe your best method of evangelism was to have a Bible in one hand, a gun in the other. Right? They come to faith, you send them home, right? There's no chance. Now, obviously, you've been around here, you know I don't believe that's what it's saying. But that is such a huge other topic. I'm so pressed for time today. So what I'm going to do next week is we're just going to deal with that topic. Can a Christian lose their salvation? Right? So we're going to take the whole morning because it's amazing how many people get our struggle with that. So we're going to put that off. But I don't think that's what it means. So you say, Steve, what does it mean? I think when you stop and you look at what he's talking about here is that if someone falls away to, to this point where, notice, did you notice the last part of verse 6? Since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame that there is a, a hardness that comes in here. 
right? So, so when someone turns back from Christ, when somebody knows the truth, they, they know Jesus, they walk with him, and now there's this conscious decision that they're going to turn, and they're going to turn whether it's theologically apostatized or practically apostatized, that there's a hardness that comes in here that gets so difficult. In fact, the, I think the argument he's saying is it is impossible to renew them because what else can you say? So what is one of the things that helps keep us on track? Is it not one another? In fact, this is exactly where he's going to go in Hebrews chapter 10. Work hard to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and all the more as you see the, the end approaching, right? Don't forsake the assembly. So you think about what Jesus told us in Matthew 18. When somebody is overtaken with a fall, you go to them. You think of Galatians, we bear one another's burdens, right? If you see someone overtaken with sin, you who are spiritual, we speak into one another's life. But there's a hardness that comes, which there's not a thing that you're going to be able to say that will stir their heart. Because you see what they've chosen to do, even though they've touched his love, they've touched his forgiveness, they've touched his grace, they've touched his power, They've decided they're going to live in a way that brings shame to Jesus. The people in their life that watched them walk with the Lord now watch them walk into sin. It's, it's as though they're there with the crowds that are jeering at Jesus. You say you're the son of God? Come down off the cross, then we'll believe. They become like one who spit upon him and mocked him. Because we've taken the name of Christ, we've experienced his goodness, but now there's a hardness of heart. And when they get to that point, there's just nothing to say. And I think that fits into the context of this whole book. I mean, remember the first warning. The first warning back in two. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Because if we do, how will we escape if we neglect that so great salvation, right? The, the planned, not justification, but glorification, living for that day. He comes back to it in chapter 3. He says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast from the beginning. Right? There's a danger there. There's a hardness there that will come when we don't do it. Do you remember, you remember Hebrews chapter 4? He's been talking about the Sabbath rest. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that we will not fall through following the same example. What's the example? Do you remember that? It was the children of Israel, Kadesh Barnea. They had experienced God's plagues upon Egypt, saw God do miracle after miracle. They saw God open the Red Sea. They were delivered. They were saved. They saw God feed them and water them, sometimes through a rock, right, in the wilderness. They saw God come down on a mountain. And now God takes them to the promised land. But when they got there, they said, we are not going to follow the Lord anymore. 
And even though Caleb and and Joshua and Moses were pleading with them, no, we have to go. They said, no, we're going back to Egypt. There was a hardness. There was nothing that could be said. And oh, by the way now, God says, okay, because of that, we're going to wander around in the wilderness. Every one of you who's 20 years of age and older, you're going to die. You chose not to go in. Your children will go into the land that you chose not to. But that's why we're going to wander around. And at that moment, it's almost like they got their heart pierced. And, and remember what they said, well, now we're going to go. And God said, no, I'm not going with you. And so sure enough, some of them went and, and they, were, they were slaughtered. There comes that point of hardness where there's nothing that we can say. And that, I think, is the danger. When not fully following Jesus... We're not taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. When the deceitfulness of sin gets into our heart, there's a hardness that comes. And it's almost like we just don't care. We don't care that we're bringing shame on our Lord. We don't care that we're ruining our testimony. We're just going to live the way we live, go the way that we go. There's not one thing that you or I can say to them at that moment. So, my debate all week, sadly, is what story in my life do I tell you about how I've seen this? Because I've seen it a number of times. Sadly, even more sadly, is right now, this very moment, I have a friend who I love. I've done ministry with in the past. We've talked long about the things of God. We've had sweet fellowship and communion. Who's right there? They, and here's the thing, the hardness of sin. My dad used to call it the intoxication of sin. Have you ever tried to talk sense to somebody who was three sheets to the wind? Have you ever tried to talk to sense to somebody who was high? They might even agree with you, but they're just going to go do the stupid that they're doing. It just doesn't, there's, there's just this thing, and, and, and it's just it's maddening, it's infuriating. And I could sit and talk, which I've done, and I've said basically the same thing I'm saying to you. And then there's all this rationalization, there's all this, and there's just just a hardness. And the reality is is that there's nothing that I could say. And where you and I are supposed to be speaking in one another's lives. And here's the thing, folks. This is the thing i got to make sure you understand. that there's not a one of us in here today that knows Jesus that's not capable of this, myself included. If we're not walking with Jesus, if we're not following him with our whole heart, if we're not taking our thoughts captive, if if we're, we're not 
choosing to follow Jesus and engage with him, the potential for every single one of us. Why? Because there's an enemy out there who's trying to pick us off, quite honestly. And that's exactly when we let sin in. It starts to do. It corrupts our mind. We don't think clearly. You think you do. Ah, I got I to be done. But I need you to look at verse 7 and 8. Because for me, this was, uh, this was like the light bulb moment of, of understanding what he's been saying here. He gives this picture. For ground that drinks in the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless, close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Now, this illustration explains it. I think the reason most of us have trouble with this is that we're not in agriculture. But the picture is this. God sends his blessing, right? Think back to verses 4 and 5. Enlightenment. Eternal life. Partakers of the Holy Spirit. The good word of God in our life. And when God sends the rain and sends the sunshine and knows the seed has been planted, the expectation is the produce comes up, the fruit comes up, the land will be productive. But there are those moments when the land is unproductive. It is worthless. It is disapproved. The word does not mean rejected. It just means it's disapproved. It doesn't accomplish what it was supposed to do. Again, I find it interesting that Paul uses the same word here, which is worthless, in 1 Corinthians 9, talking about how we all run to achieve the heavenly prize of reward. And he says this, he says, but I discipline my body, I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified, disapproved, worthless. He's looking ahead at reward. And I think what the author is saying is this. The expectation is that as God blesses his children and God teaches us about himself, that we would continue on. But sometimes the only produce that comes out are the thorns and the thistles. And notice he says it's close to being cursed. Now, again, this is where some people say, well, he couldn't be a Christian because a Christian can't be cursed. And you go, well, again, think Old Testament. Remember, God takes his children of Israel finally after 40 years into the land. And what did he give them? Blessings? and cursings. You follow me, you're going to end all these blessings. You don't follow me, here are coming the cursings. Oh, by the way, what did Israel do? <laughs> they didn't follow the Lord. They're cursing. In fact, the cursings to the point that ultimately I will scatter you among other nations and I will take this land back from you. But all oh, by the way, in the midst of all that, they never cease to be his people. They never ceased to be cared for by him. They were never taken out of his plan. And it says, 
and the land to be burned, right? Well, again, we, we, we read that, people think hell. That's not the picture. Folk, when you burn land, you don't destroy the land. When you burn land, you destroy the overgrowth. I remember being on a Caribbean island, right? Lots of overgrowth. They're burning stuff. Why? Well, because it's so overgrown of bad stuff, it can't grow anything good. So the way you get rid of it is you burn it. Because not only does that stuff go away, but now it puts nutrients in the soil so that you can get good stuff out. There's a future harvest. And I, I would argue with you that in this picture, even now, what we see is, is God's care for, for his children. And that sometimes he's got to burn it down, right? When that hardness comes, God's got to... Have you ever heard the term rock bottom? I'm not going to ask you if you've been there. But sometimes what God's got to do with believers who turn away from them is to take them to rock bottom. And I'll tell you, some of you, if we had time today, because that's what you did, you would sit here and give testimony of rock bottom and how miserable it was, but it was one of the greatest things God ever did for you because it got your attention, put you back focused on following him with your whole heart. I think Paul even argues in 1 Corinthians 11 that if we don't respond to that, that sometimes God in his discipline, which by the way, this is exactly where it's going in Hebrews chapter 12, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Do you see the context of the book? That when we don't respond to the discipline of the Lord, sometimes part of that discipline is he just takes us home. There's a very interesting scripture in the book of Hebrews. We're going to get there. I just want to roll it out today. And it's this. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Folk, he's not talking to unsaved people there. He's talking to me. He's talking to you. And in this context and culture, when all we really want to deal with is, oh, God's love, he's great. He does. He does love you. But can I ask you as a parent? Did you ever have one of your kids do something and you weren't real happy with them? Maybe mad at them? Maybe you had to set discipline in because you loved them? God hates sin. It'll destroy you. I'm thankful he loves us enough that he will work. Sometimes take us to rock bottom. So what does that mean for me today and for you today? It means today we need to follow Jesus with our full heart. We need to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We need to walk in relationship with others and have them speaking into our lives and us speaking into them. We have got to be diligent to follow after the Lord with our whole heart. Because if not, if not, there is potential that we could fall away.